Before we get into the meaty topics, a magazine that you recently did a deep dive on. Yeah. I've long been fascinated with the magazine That's Life. Do you know That's well, Life? Well, only since you pointed it out to me. I now do know it. It's not the sort of magazine <laughs> that I would buy. You're not the target market, Mark. No. That's all right. But, I mean, on the off chance that... Hayden, I'm the, not the target market for anything anymore. Are you, that's true. You've, <laughs> um, I, are you past the... What is it? Use the, by date. Yeah. I think it's a, some 25 to 40-something bracket that they target for the advertisers. Oh, yeah, you'll be past it. I think I'm beyond 40. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. We've gotten off topic already. But on the off chance the audience hasn't seen this magazine on the supermarket shelf, I mean, it's essentially what would happen if you spliced together the bleakest Cormac McCarthy novel, you know, Blood Meridian, Meridian or something, maybe the movie Hereditary, and then just splice them together with like a Suzanne Paul infomercial. So every cover <laughs> contains three elements. You've got a grinning stock image model. You've got upbeat ads for puzzles and recipes, and you have some of the most harrowing headlines about life's horrors ever put to print. Just horrible stuff. So I wrote about this for David Ferrier's Substack blog, Webworm, earlier this week. And just as as an example of a cover, I used the June 1 issue. So you have this grinning stock model. uh, It's a stock photo. It's a model that has nothing to do with any of the content in the magazine. But below her face is the headline, She killed her friend to steal her baby. And besides this grinning, grinning model's head, you have another headline, Handbrake Horror. Split in half by my car. So this this just gives you an idea of the kind of juxtaposition of content that's going on here. I just see one here. I think this is for June 19th. Abused by my sister's husband. How I stopped him hurting more girls. And, and it's got the blue-eyed blonde girl in the front who's smiling at you. And you know That woman has nothing. You know, be a stock model, they said. Uh, it'll pay well, they said. That's, that woman has nothing to do with these stories, which are some of the most harrowing and, uh, and despicable and sort of ones that you'll ever see in print. Not exactly the most, uh, well, tonally consistent cover of all time, I'd suggest. Yeah, I mean, that's... Putting it, I mean, euphemistically, isn't it? And seeing these magazines in the supermarket aisle as I queued for groceries, I was always sort of alarmed and delighted in equal measure. So I decided to do a bit of digging into how it operates and why it is like it is. And one bit of context that you need to know about these magazines, the magazine That's Life in particular, is that it's not alone. It's part of a multiverse of pretty much identical magazines. And Nearly all of them originate in the UK, of course, Mm. the UK being the most brain-addled media market in the world. So you have Chat, That's Life UK, which is unrelated to That's Life New Zealand and Australia. You have Lucky Break, Love It, Take a Break, uh, I think Pick Me Up. You've got more, and all of these magazines have the same mix of puzzles, prizes, and true life stories that will shatter your faith in the fundamental goodness of the universe. So you can imagine how inappropriate some of the headlines look next to the titles that I just mentioned. One example, just that I I, I looked up, uh, headline: They stole my son and and they stole my son and drained his blood. And that's the lead headline from the magazine. Love it! Exclamation mark. I would not love it if so, someone did that to my son. No, of course. So how how do these magazines even get the stories? Do they just interview their keyboards? I mean, 
and, and and find enough of these stories to actually fill a magazine every week. Exactly. That's what that's what I wonder because some of these stories, you know, there's not many people getting buried in their backyard or stuck in a freezer, and even less that are willing to talk about it. Right? It's a very uncommon experience. I don't know how they're filling a magazine every week, but basically the way that they do it is they have big readerships and they pay a fee. So what I've been told from people that have experienced this fee is that it can be pretty tidy and. Uh, there's other ways as well. I've heard from the sometimes reliable source Colin Peacock that the magazine's <laughs> staff will trawl, give a little pages, ask people with tragic stories whether they want to appear in the magazine. And that sounds pretty ghoulish, but it's probably a bit of a win-win situation in a way because you get a fee and publicity for the cause. There might be or have been over the years some questionable editorial practices as well, potentially. So in 2013, again... Uh, Colin Peacock of Media Watch, occasionally a uh, good source of information. He's not bad. He's okay. He's not he, bad. All right. Um, <laughs> let's not go overboard. He revealed that That's Life had been taking stories from the UK, changing the names of their subjects, and pretending that they were local content. So in the words of Paul Dykzel, who I interviewed for Webworm, he ran ACP and Bauer, which managed That's Life for mm. 25 years. Uh, he put it like this. Beryl from Manchester suddenly became Sheila from Brisbane. So the story is, uh, the stories are true. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah, the, the stories are true, but I guess sometimes you're short of content and yeah. Beryl from Manchester has just got to become someone from Masterton or whatever. Good, good yarn. Yeah, mm. Beryl from Masterton. All right. I guess the other question is why they have this unique design, these covers. The covers, the juxtapositions of the, the, the extreme light and the, 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 gr- the grim dark. Mm. And on that, I only have theories. I had to get a bit psychological here. I mean, there's... The obvious, in terms of why does it have dark content, we all have this kind of prurient urge to read about people's pain and misfortune, uh, you know, fear. This is what horror movies come from, fear and excitement. They have pretty mm. similar, they, they they look a pretty similar way when you scan our brains and these stories trigger a bit of both of those. Uh, on the jarring tonal clash, I actually interviewed a psychotherapist named Paul Wilson and he pinned that on the usual reason for just about, you know, a lot of things in society, and that's sexism. So women are the target market for these magazines, but they're probably uh, still more stigmatized for expressing an interest in stuff like violence and sex. The men, despite studies showing there's not really any evidence that they are less interested in those topics than men. So people will raise their eyebrows if they see... Uh, a lady watching gore videos or reading a lengthy book on torture or something like that, mm. you know. But if you package some of that same content in a glossy magazine with puzzles, it takes an edge off that judgment. It's socially acceptable in a way it wasn't before. Anyway, that's all a lot of information. But I, I, I did say that I'm really interested in these magazines. I kind of They are quite amazing. I look at them and they always uh, take my breath away. Am I alone here? Though, Mark, like, is this something that has anyone else been fascinated by that's life and lucky break and the like? Well, I think I'm fascinated by where they get the stories from, for one thing, and who buys these things. And obviously, people do because they keep coming back. I mean, if you do, if anyone's out there and they've actually participated in these magazines, sold a story or whatever, then mm. let us know. 2101. Love to hear from you, absolutely. Now, having got that out of the way, some media news now. Last week, Media Watch reported on some big changes at Stuff. Um, You have an update on that? 
Yeah, just a very small one. As Colin again reported, we understand a restructure is being planned at the top of our biggest news organisation. And the organisation is, uh, we understand, uh, proposing the removal of a dedicated editor role at The Post, currently filled by Caitlin Cherry, and creating a new joint editor role for both The Post and the Sunday Star Times. And since then, it's actually been revealed as well that Stuff's Me Too editor, Ali Moore, is departing the organisation. She won uh, the Voyager for Reporter of the Year in 2021. She's broken some of the biggest stories of the last few years. So that's that's a pretty big surprise, and her work has been heralded, I think, for its attention to detail, the way victims have been protected. There were some fears about Me Too when it first started, but it's actually one of the most rigorously fact-checked sections that stuff runs, I believe. So Mm. it's uh, a sad loss for Mm. stuff. She's done some great work. Mm. So what's the response been on these changes from staff? One of the things that we reported last week was that staff were being sort of informed about these changes they haven't I mean they were unhappy they hadn't been informed of these changes actually when Media Watch broke its story last week uh the organisation has moved to rectify that. They held a staff meeting earlier this week that was fronted by the managing director of Stuff Digital, Nadia Tolich, and others. And it's understood that at that meeting, several staff pressed her and others for more information about these changes, and the leadership team is pledging to deliver that information. But as such, it seems we might not see any uh, of their proposals actually announced this week as was originally planned and reported. Well, we'll move on to what was the biggest story of the last week or two, and that would be the search for the Titan submarine. Yeah, uh, biggest news might not be quite the right term. It was more like the most news, wasn't it? I mean, this, it was everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere the story received blanket coverage. We had news networks from around the world sending their correspondents to places like St. John in Newfoundland, Canada, yeah. to report live from a few hundred kilometres away from the Titanic's wreck. Uh, it's live on scene, sort of, more like live, uh, like a long way away from the scene, but slightly closer. I mean, on the American <laughs> network News Nation, we saw newsreaders, they were literally sitting in front of digital clocks, cl- counting down until air runs out on the Titan. Yeah, that's a bit unseemly, isn't it? That's... Uh, just a tiny bit unseemly. People did actually call that one out. That was News Nation in the US. Uh, but instead of simply owning up to say, oh, no, we made a mistake, we got it wrong here, they actually stood firm. They told Deadline and others that the oxygen levels on the Titan submersible have always been an essential and important part of the story. Multiple media outlets have published or aired stories tracking the remaining oxygen on the Titan as the search continued. In fact, they said it would be irresponsible not to include this information in the story of the rescue effort. I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure I'm buying that one, Mark. I mean, as it turns out, though, the air levels weren't really an issue. The submarine had suffered what's been called a catastrophic implosion. I thought, as a, what, what is there a non-catastrophic <laughs> implosion? If I suffered any type of implosion, I'd assume it would be catastrophic. Yep, for you, uh, totally. That mm. implosion had actually been picked up five days ago, or at the beginning of the search by the US Navy's sonar equipment, which passed the information onto the Coast Guard, which apparently didn't pass it onto the media because we had five days of breathless coverage, mm. where they explored every angle on this story, including... Asking Titanic director James Cameron what he thought of things. So mm. here he is criticizing the Titans captain for cutting corners. I'm struck by the similarity of the Titanic disaster itself, where the captain was repeatedly warned about ice ahead of his ship, and yet he steamed at full speed 
into an ice field on a moonless night, and many people died as a result. Mm. Now, I might not be being fair to James Cameron just calling him the director of the Titanic. I mean, he has experience going to extreme depths in a submarine, including on 9-11, where he emerged from a submarine to be told by the actor Bill Paxson about what uh, Paxson called the worst terrorist attack in history. Mm. What a way to be told about 9-11, emerging from a submarine to be told by Bill Paxson about it. Mm. Uh, But I think that his employment as a commentator just shows how hungry the media was for content on this story. Just about anything ran. Well, it also there's a link with Titanic itself. I mean, he had the yeah. link with the movie, and that, that, that ship has always, I don't know, it's just enthralled people for 111 years, hasn't it? Yeah, so, and that's probably why it got so, one of the reasons why it got so much coverage. The level of coverage we gave has been criticised, though, I think, isn't it? Especially when you compare it to the attention given to other tragedies. I think there was a, a big, a lot of drownings in Pakistan or something like that. I mean, the boat people, that sort of thing, yeah, happening uh, all the time, isn't it? And... and, and This was criticised by our counterpart across the ditch, Media Watch Australia. So this is Paul Barry over there delivering a scolding take on the priorities of Australia's journalists. So, did any of the Australian networks send a correspondent to Greece? No, they did not. What's more, Channel 7's only reference to the disaster was a 30-second voiceover on the news. And 7 Sydney Bureau decided it was not even worth that and ignored the story altogether in its 6pm bulletin. Hundreds of migrants drowning in Greek waters did not rate a single mention. How tragic and shameful is that? Yeah, and I mean, that's a pertinent point mm. in this case. You, you have, uh, I think it, because of the exact juxtaposition, you have two marine tragedies happening literally simultaneously. One involves people who have paid $250,000 to take a tourist trip to the bottom of the ocean, and another involves desperate people who have boarded a rickety boat in search of a better life. And it shows how people, uh, the Titanic aspect is one part of it. It also shows how how people who are rich, who this doesn't happen Mm. to, uh, they get more attention when bad stuff happens to them. And I think more specifically, and uh, maybe more distressingly, it shows the level of suffering that we just accept as a fact of life for people who are poor and desperate. Mm. Uh, That's, I think, a pertinent point to make. I do have to say, I, I have a, degree of discomfort with this trend where we do use media coverage of one tragedy to criticise the media coverage of another, though. So what, what, what's your discomfort? Again, I think that this is probably one of the most justifiable cases. The criticism here is warranted. Mm. But sometimes I do get a bit squeamish seeing these sorts of debates pop up with every tragedy where someone says, what about this other one? Uh, you know, wherever there's a large-scale media event, it's what about this other one? I remember it with the Charlie Hebdo shooting in 2015 where people complained that the media gave blanket coverage to that uh, mass shooting but not to a bombing around the same time in Iran. And I, I wondered at the time, I remember, how, how many of these people were, were, t- were tweeting or writing posts about bombings in Iran and the situation in Iran before that they they could use it as a way of of criticizing someone and seeming morally superior how many of them had been highlighting those reports and it can feel like using one tragedy not out of genuine long-standing concern but as a means of expressing that kind of moral superiority and getting those what what, what do you call it, internet points and there's a, there's something a bit ghoulish in the way Obviously, the media consistently elevates the stories of the privileged and gives them more weight. I think there might be something a bit ghoulish in leveraging people's deaths from time to time and, and the grief over those deaths. Mm. And, 
as a means of advertising your own uh, rightness or righteousness. But at the end of the day, it's the clickbait, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the fact that the, you know there's two billionaires who made a decision to get on a craft that was obviously not, not safe. You would have thought they would have done the due, due diligence and checked all that out. Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's <coughs> unusual mm. that this would happen. And but then it's kind of disgusting that migrants drowning in the Mediterranean yes. is is, is usual. Yeah, it's treated right. as we accept but, that. Yeah. yeah, terrible, isn't it? Now, on the subject of grip, griping <laughs> about the media's coverage and priorities, uh, we have had some complaints about how the media is covering national leader Christopher Luxon. Yes, one of those complaining is our most popular morning talk radio host. Now, as context for that complaint, just so that you understand what he's referring to, this is a question One News political reporter Benedict Collins asked Luxon at the National Party's conference over the weekend. There's been so much talk about lawlessness, about the crime wave here at this conference. Are you worried that National Party supporters might not feel safe enough to go out and vote on polling day? <laughs> no. National Party voters uh, and supporters are incredibly keen to change this government. Obviously, a little bit of a cheeky question there. Possibly not serious. And Newstalk ZB's Mike Hosking did take exception to it on his show the following day on Monday. Answer me this question because I had a small debate in the newsroom this morning. Some of the media treatment of what you got over the weekend, the bloke whose name I can't remember from TV1 asking whether people are too scared to vote, was he being smart or was that was a serious question? No, I think it was, I think it was a smart smart question. <laughs> um, I think he's just being cheeky. That's Mike Hosking talking to Christopher Luxon. And that transitioned into a criticism of the media more generally. So they started this time... I don't know if you saw this, but Christopher Luxon was criticised for saying that he'd supported the Crusaders since he was a small boy. And, and the other reference was the weekend you got it wrong on the Crusaders and you've supported the Crusaders since you were a little boy and the Crusaders yeah. went around, blah, blah, blah. Is that what you're expecting? The reason I'm asking these questions is, is that what yep. you're expecting this campaign? They don't like you, clearly, and they're yep. out to score points. Yep, and that's the uh, that's what we think the Labour approach will be, which will become after me personally. We think that's been the plan for some time. There's a, a the the context there is that the Crusaders actually formed when Christopher Luxon was 26, which, mm. in most people's definition, is not a small boy. Though I know that my mind was not fully developed at that time. In his defence, I think that there's more similarity between the Canterbury yes. rugby team. You'd be thinking and, Canterbury. You know, you'd be thinking of Canterbury. Yeah, of course. It'd be let, be fair here, guys. Yeah. Anyway. A pretty interesting and tricky conflation there of the media and Labour by Lux, and that was a bit of tricky sleight of hand. Mm -hmm. Now, this issue's been bubbling away. There's real dissatisfaction in Nationals' ranks about what it seems as a slanted media coverage. There has been, and that was certainly on visceral display at its conference. And RNZ's deputy political editor, Craig McCulloch, talked to some national voters, and this is what they said about the media. A frustration keenly felt among the membership. The media only tells one side of the story. I don't believe the polls. I think they are being rigged by you media guys. You know, like you've got to get out to the public. Some of the media are being quite devious in the way they are treating Christopher Luxon. Media in general have had a set up to bring him down every opportunity you get. So, what do you make of those complaints? I got to say, I don't love the idea that reporters should be hassled or harangued into going easy on politicians they think have missed the mark or got things wrong. 
in the name of so-called objectivity or balance or not wanting to look like they're being too harsh on one side or the other. I just don't think that kind of calculation should come into things. Their job is to assess the facts, tell the truth as best they can. Sometimes those, those truths will be harsh. Again, it's that old saying, if someone says it's raining, your job isn't to report what they say along with another person who says it's not. Your job is to look out the window. So basically you're saying criticism, even strong criticism, isn't bias in and of itself unless it is unfair or if it's un applied unevenly, effectively. Yeah, I think if, if you have different standards for different parties, if you're not willing to criticise one. And just to give you an example, this is Benedict Collins in that same report that Hoskin criticised and here he is talking to Wendy Petrie on Sunday. What did you make of their key law and order announcement today? Well, I think the Justice Minister, Kitty Allen, is absolutely right. I mean, this is the kind of policy announcement that National used to just lampoon Labour for making when Labour was in opposition. When it comes to their main announcement around that 40% cap, they don't know how many more people this will end up putting into prison, and they've got no idea how much it will cost. This is really finger-in-the-air kind of stuff. Now, many people will really bristle at that kind of statement and say it like, betrays a lack of objectivity, I don't mind. I mean, if, if I would say that if the criticism was pulled out of thin air in some way, but National, uh, the criticisms weren't. The National hadn't costed its new prisons policy. Its ministers were kind of caught on the hop with not knowing that the government had introduced legislation and allowing prisoners on remand to access rehab, which was actually the policy that National was announcing at its conference. Uh, what would be of real concern is if Benedict Collins was unwilling to make the same sorts of strong criticisms of Labour's failings. And I think you can't really make that accusation if you do go through the records. So here, for instance, he is talking to Social Development Minister Carmel Sepuloni and taking her to task in 2022. In this case, for what is seen as kind of hypocrisy for criticising a national policy which said they would apply benefit sanctions to sick and disabled job seekers while her own government was actually doing the exact same thing to people in that same predicament. This is Benedict Collins. But people were furiously critical, right, of Christopher Luxon when he said that their new programme, those sanctions would apply to those with health or disability issues. People were outraged at that, right? And you guys are um, doing the same thing. I think what he was proposing was much more broad. So not holding back there, that's a pretty pointed question. In other words, reporters should criticise every screw-up they see without fear or favour. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Good. OK. Now, speaking of gripes about media coverage, you had a small one over a story in the New Zealand Herald um, was today. Yeah, yeah, the Herald printed a story today with the headline, Former Transport Minister Michael Wood ignored official advice not to toll Auckland's Penlink Road. Now, on the face of it, that's true. Penlink is the highway between Whangapadawa Peninsula and, uh, well, I guess... To go into the, to Long Bay. Silverdale. So, yeah, yeah, Silverdale. I don't, the, the exact route it goes through. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the, the, just to explain to the non-Aucklanders out there. Uh, and mm. the Ministry of Transport had actually advised Michael Wood t- not to toll the route, saying that it will diminish the benefits of that road. However, after giving a rundown of that advice that the minister allegedly ignored, uh, the story from the Herald notes in one line that Waka Kotahi also provided advice to the minister urging to him to go ahead with tolling. So that's also, in the words of the story's headline, official advice. So either he tolls the road and ignores official advice, or he doesn't toll the road and 
ignores official advice. Yeah, it's a real, real situation. It's a real heads I win, tails you lose situation for the minister there. Not sure what he could have done to avoid this headline. I guess the only real way to not ignore official advice under the Herald's definition would be to somehow both toll and not toll the road at once, which I imagine would involve interdimensional travel or maybe the multiverse, you know, quarks neurons and such like. Uh, another idea that I came up with today, maybe tolling every car, then putting the drivers through a series of tests and challenges to see whether the <laughs> toll should be waived. Look, none of it seems particularly feasible. So I thought it was a bit <laughs> a bit hard on poor old Michael Wood uh, to give him that headline. Uh, and it was particularly iffy, given that Penlink had been sold as a toll road for Yonks. Since mm. 2001, it was always proposed as a toll road and tolling was part of its 2015 business case. So if anything was an outlier, it was that Ministry of Transport advice, not the Waka Kotahi stuff. So, you know, it's, he's had a tough few weeks, hasn't he, Michael Wood? Yeah, I know. And much of it, it has to be said of his own mm. making. Uh, he's had a lot of his, he's had a lot, a lot on his plate for sure. But unlike his failure to sell his shares in Auckland Airport, this dilemma wasn't really of his own making. Well, while we're at it, you also like to comment on some some good news. Commend some Herald journalism. Yes, Raphael Franks and Derek Cheng have written a good piece about the uh, the Christchurch mosque attack video reappearing on Twitter. That video, obviously illegal in New Zealand. Despite that, it appeared on a Twitter user's For You feed. That's the feed that's algorithmically served to you. And that user reported the account to Twitter. It replied, after reviewing the available information, we want to let you know this account hasn't broken our safety policies. That seems pretty wild, and especially since the site does have a policy against promoting terrorism, which obviously this video does. So, did the Herald manage to sort it out? Yeah, it contacted Twitter's press office for comment, but in a new move, which was the brainchild of the company's uh, groundbreaking chief executive, Elon Musk, the press office sent back an automated response, which is just a poo emoji, mm. does this to every media query now. Uh, however, obviously someone did actually read the email because the service removed the video half an hour later. So nevertheless, you'd have to say that an initial response from Twitter is doesn't exactly inspire a lot of confidence. Mm. Mm. Credit, though, to the Herald for getting the video removed, particularly Raphael Franks, who have seen a few good stories from lately, and he's a new journalist who progressed to the paper through its Tour Journalism Cadetship Programme, which mm-hmm. is aimed at fostering Māori journalism. It's a really good scheme. We're at 5 to 11. Hayden Donnell with us, Midweek Media Watch. And finally this week, the media had some brickbats of their own. In this case, for the rugby players, they're trying to cover. Yeah, they're miffed at the Chiefs, the devastated Chiefs, for not fronting up to them after losing to the Crusaders in the Super Rugby final on Saturday. So instead of post-match commentary from the players, it was left to the coaches. And this is what News Hub's Ollie Ritchie had to say about that, and specifically about the no-show from all-black captain Sam Kane. A disappointing end for Sam Kane, though. His decision not to front up to the media afterwards was really disappointing. Unbecoming of Kane, unbecoming of an All Blacks captain. Sam Kane is a much better leader than that. You would expect him to front up in good times and in bad. So a disappointing end for Sam Kane after a disappointing result for the Chiefs. 
hard words for Sam Kane and that Kane and that was echoed by SENZ producer Sam Hewitt on Twitter who said that rugby is just about the only sport in the world where fans barely hear from superstars with media often hearing the excuse that those superstars need to focus on the match and he contrasted that with other sporting codes like league where the media actually gets access to players like this extremely drunk Maddie Johns after his Newcastle side's win in the 1997 NRL Grand Final. Tell us a bit (laughs) about what that feeling was like coming home to Newcastle last night. Um, it was better than, uh, it was better than Lego. It was better than Lego. It was better than Lego. Mind you, that's a few years ago now, 1997, isn't it? Yeah, you might not get that kind of access anymore. Was the criticism of the Chiefs unanimous? No, not 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 everyone. Uh, the the devastation of the Chiefs apparently did move some media members. So on Newstalk ZB, this is Jason Pine expressing sympathy for the for the players, saying they were plumbing depths of emotion. Few of us can fathom. Talking to Elliot Smith, who was on the ground in um, in Hamilton, he said he's never seen a side as devastated after yeah. losing a game as the Chiefs were. They were just absolutely distraught after losing that he game. He said to me it was like when he was talking to them and trying to interview them, it was like they were staring off into the distance as if they'd seen a bomb go off. Yeah, the thousand-yard stare, right? Just, we, we just can't comprehend what has just happened. Yeah, maybe. But I mean, extreme sadness is still part of the sport. Uh, you know, it would be terrible, but media is part of the business. And having said that, it is a bit rough to expect rugby players to suddenly start getting loquacious and pouring out their emotions on camera. After for years, we would mock them for showing so much as a smile after scoring a trial. They're meant to try. They're meant to sort of run back to the to the halfway line like the lugging an empty wheelbarrow, but maybe opening up is a bit of a slow process and we need to take some baby steps. Well, in his defence, uh, Sam Kane, I know Clayton McMillan, the coach of the Chiefs, actually said he, um, uh, I think Kane was busy, uh, you know, recovering and done all the post-match interviews on Sky. And Clayton said, I'm just going to do I'm not going to put him through that. I'm just going to do it myself. Didn't actually ask him to attend the oh, uh, press conference. So, Sam Kane, uh, he got absolutely nailed. For yeah. something that wasn't even his fault. Well, that's what he's suggesting. But anyway, um, but there you go. Well, thank you very much, Hayden. Excellent uh, stuff for you. Thanks, and Mark. Any texts about that's life? Uh, well, I've got I got one. Yeah. Um, which basically said, uh, I hope I can read. I haven't actually pre-read this. This is dangerous Uh-oh, stuff. Oh no. I know a woman who is a weekly buyer of that's life. Just something else for the recycling bin after a couple of months. It's Ray and Carterton. (laughs) No one is fascinated by it as I am, obviously. And someone else has said, Sam Kane, it was apparently the devil of the coach. Not for Sam to be interviewed loquaciously. So in other words, yeah, backing up what, what I said. So anyway, there you go. There you go.